Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about health and health care. And that uh, is a subject, of course, that everyone is interested in. It's a, uh, it's a real part of our everyday lives and so many changes happening every day that it is good to have with us Steve Lawler, who is the president and CEO of the North Carolina Healthcare Association. This was formerly called the North Carolina Hospital Association. Steve, welcome to the program. Delighted to have you with Hey, thank you. I appreciate you having me. Well, you know, the last uh, 15 months or so have been so unusual uh, for all of us in many walks of life. But uh, COVID-19 had a huge impact on hospitals. Um, and uh, sort of tell us how the hospitals have done and how they fared and how they are uh, sort of returning, I guess, to normal now these days. But more than that, uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about how our hospitals in the state of North Carolina fared during that time. Sure. Well, let me first, I'd like to just start by saying, you know, that, uh, you know, our hospitals throughout the state, you know, were there, you know, each and every day for, you know, for, you know, people throughout North Carolina. And, you know, even though there were a lot of uh, individuals, communities and organizations, you know, that were concerned and, and rightly so, um, you know, hospitals just kind of tightened their belt and put their shoulder behind an effort to make sure that they were safe, that they had the resources available, and that people were well trained to be able to take care of not only patients that were infected with COVID, but also those patients that needed, you know, just everyday care. I think one of the amazing things is that, you know, people continue to get sick and hospitals, you know, continued to be full and, you know, their ability to manage those COVID patients that required specialized skill and specialized rooms and specialized equipment, while at the same time continuing to, to, to take care of newborns and expectant mothers and people involved in uh, automobile accidents and people with heart attacks, just, uh, you know, is really... I think a, a proud moment for the field. Um, so, and, and it was a difficult time. I think what we found out is that, um, you know, we asked our staff over the past 18 months um, to fight a war and that's what it was really like. It, uh, people were, you know, coming to work each and every day, working long shifts and doing it in conditions that, uh, you know, were incredibly challenging, but, when you look at what happened in North Carolina, we were able to avoid um, some of those scenes and situations that we saw in New York and New Jersey and uh, you know out west. So I think we're really proud of the fact that hospitals stepped up. In many cases, they filled the gap because uh, what we found is that public health was uh, not uh, you know adequately um, funded or supported to react to this kind of uh, unprecedented pandemic and out of necessity folks just stepped up and, and did what they needed to do to uh to safeguard communities well certainly and a lot has been said about the uh, uh the, the care that was given and and the danger that the hospital workers and healthcare professionals were placing themselves in and providing that care and of course We'll all never forget that. I hope we'll never forget that. We shouldn't. 
The uh, other thing I guess we could say, and you've already alluded to it, that uh, North Carolina seemed to do a much better job because we never got, as far as I know, we never got to the point where uh, any hospital was turning anybody down that I heard of. I, I think we were able to cover them all, weren't we? Yeah, we, we, we did not have to uh, go on diversion. And in fact, we had patients from other states come into North Carolina just because of our readiness. Um, I, I would say that uh, um, the pandemic, you know, not only put a strain on people because we really stretched people to the limit and we certainly learned about resiliency and how to take care of folks during, you know, these kind of sustained operations. You know, we also found out, you know, what kind of impact it has to hospitals, especially small community hospitals, when you stop doing um, elective or non-essential procedures or services for a lot of our small community hospitals, that, that, that makes up 80% of their, their revenue. So when we stop doing that to harden our facilities, to be prepared for COVID patients, um, you know, it certainly had a, a significant impact on, on them. And, you know, now they're slowly um, starting to recover, but it, it's going to take, uh, it's going to take years and, and it's going to take, uh, you know, thoughtful policy and legislative support to make sure we get them back on their feet. Well, you know, one of the things that gets lost now that the situation is less uh, threatening than it was is the fact that we still have some COVID-19 cases. And that, so we still have this problem. And one of the concerns, I guess, is that uh, it seems that we've kind of hit a, a, a slowdown in those who are willing to take the vaccination. Where do, where, where do we stand on that? And what are we going to do to get that uh, number of people vaccinated up to a much higher level? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So I, I would say that, you know, we, we've gotten to a point where, you know, people are feeling confident and, and, and feeling some sense of success. But you're right. The fact is, you know, we still have patients in the hospital and the number of patients in the hospital are probably equivalent to this time last year. Um, and I think the reason that we're enjoying some success, you know, really are, are twofold. Um, one, um, as inconvenient as the governor's executive orders were, I mean, they had a positive impact. Wearing masks, social distancing, um, maintaining your distance, um, you know, helped us get to a point where vaccinating people and, and trying to get over that 50, 60, 75 percent mark, um, you know, really helps us not only um, obtain some sort of herd immunity, but it also allows us to get back to uh, a, a more normal state. So we have to continue to encourage, you know, individuals to get uh, to get their vaccine just because they say numbers getting better doesn't mean that we can't have a setback as they've had in Europe or other places. So when, when you track what's happening around the world, um, you know, we've seen some uh, waxes and wanes improvements and setbacks, you know, throughout countries in, in Europe and elsewhere. I mean, that could happen here if we are not disciplined in our approach to get people vaccinated. And, uh, you know, we continue to, to look for each and every opportunity to, uh, to ask, encourage, and then provide those resources for folks to get that done. Um, and it, it, it's essential for, um, for all of our future to do that. Now, uh, 
during the the uh, COVID nineteen situation last uh, last year, this time, hospitals were having to put very strict limits on visitation and that sort of thing. And that's it's always very sad, especially if you've got someone who's critical or in bad shape and you go to the hospital and you can't visit them. Uh, are, are the hospitals now back open as far as taking visitors or where do we stand on that? Yeah, so I think what we're seeing now are hospitals, uh, you know, have changed their visitation policies and uh, certainly uh, are um, encouraging family and, and there, there may still be a, a limit on the number of people that can show up uh, at any given time. I was at uh, UNC hospital um, earlier today and they, they had visitors there um, with, you know, to, to go visit the company loved ones. It, it was a difficult time when, you know, hospitals changed their visitation policy to safeguard their institution. We were dealing with uh, a, a virus and a pandemic where people are infected. And if you're asymptomatic, I mean, you don't know. So it could be, you know, it could be a situation where a visitor could infect the most vulnerable patients in our hospital. Um, and in, 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 in during those times, um, our hospital staff acted as surrogate families. So they sat in the room with patients, they held patients' hands, they, you know, did um, extraordinary things to make people feel loved and comforted during um, a most difficult time. Well, that, as I said, that's very taxing on everybody when you can't visit someone that's in the hospital, especially a loved one. I'm glad that that's going on. Now, one of the things that uh, we've talked a lot, a lot about are the vaccines, and that's certainly uh, good. But I also understand that there's a lot of progress being made on the medicines that treat COVID-19. Where, where do we stand on that? Are there any big breakthroughs there? Um, you know, I think that if we think about the, the, the learning and the new science that's taken place since our first COVID case in North Carolina to today, um, I think North Carolinians should be confident that our, that our hospitals um, understand how to better treat these patients. And as you said, have, have better tools. And, and I'll use an example. My, you know, my father, who is uh, in his uh, mid-80s, uh, uh, got COVID and he was a candidate for the monoclonal antibodies. And, you know, for, for those patients that are starting to exhibit symptoms that are older and at high risk, I mean, it's a phenomenal uh, therapy that has proven to prevent hospitalization and speed recovery. So we're, you know, we're introducing, uh, you know, new uh, biologics and uh, new pharmaceuticals every day um, to better treat patients that are, that are positive. Well, before we wrap this seg segment up, as far as COVID-19, uh, you know, all of us in business have learned some new tricks that are positive that we're going to learn from our experience of being working out of our homes and that sort of thing, using Zoom as we are for this broadcast. Uh, what were the things that hospitals learned that uh, may prove to be useful as they continue their operations in other ways? Well, that's a, that's a wonderful question. So um, I think one of the things we learned is you know, that telehealth has great utility for delivering health care to people throughout the state uh, and providing state-of-the-art uh, 
subspecialty care to communities that have never had that before. So I think the use of uh, telehealth really one of those uh, you know great lessons learned. I, I think the other is um, is reaching out before outside the four walls of your hospital to connect to your community and really um, interact with patients and and help them there. Um, and we did things like hospital from home where we would work with uh, patients and families where they could manage somebody that was COVID positive at home um, in a way that allowed them to um, prevent an admission. And now we're looking for other ways to kind of apply that type of thinking to other disease states for patients. Well, uh, as I said, in business, we've learned an awful lot of tricks that uh, I think are going to be very useful. And it sounds that's good. I want to spend a little bit more time talking about telemedicine and technology a little later on in the program, and we'll do that. Our guest is Steve Lawler, who's the president and CEO of the North Carolina Healthcare Association. And uh, we're going to come back and we're also going to talk about uh, <laughs> the Affordable Care Act and, and the way people pay for health care, because that's a concern to everyone. And we'll do that when we return with the next segment of Carolina Newsmakers. So you stay tuned. Okay, men, this is your time. Maybe you didn't choose this, but you're here now. You're going to go out there and be an all-star caregiver. It's up to you. So what are you going to do? You're going to go grocery shopping, cook, clean, be there emotionally and physically. you got to dig deeper. Drive them to physical therapy, doctor's appointments. Don't you forget about the pharmacy. I know you won't, because that's what caregivers do. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. This is your time to show the world, your family, and yourself that you're tougher than tough. Now go out there and be the best caregiver this world has ever seen. Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find the care guides you need at aarp.org slash caregiving a public service announcement brought to you by aarp and the ad council melissa from michigan i work an extra part-time job serving lunch at my child's school but i still can't afford to put food on our table daniel from california choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all now we can't even pay for meals hunger is a story we can end End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Uh, We have Steve Lawler with us. And Steve is a native of Greenville, North Carolina, 1982 graduate of the Citadel. And after a distinguished career in the uh, Army, where he had achieved the rank of Lieutenant Colonel, he's, he's been working in healthcare in numerous capacities throughout the state ever since. And, and now, of course, is president of the, the Healthcare Association. Steve, I guess one of the things that uh, has concerned not only uh, decision makers and lawmakers, but also the average everyday citizen is how do we pay for healthcare? And uh, right now, uh, the Affordable Healthcare Act uh, has sort of settled in. Um, what parts of that are working well and what parts uh, do we need to continue to worry about or maybe perhaps improve? Sure. Well, I mean, first, I, I would say that, uh, you know, healthcare is too expensive. And I think hospitals and health systems and doctors 
you know, realize that. And, and they're working every day to, uh, to look for new and different ways to help individuals reach their health potential. Because when we know that when people are healthier, you know, healthcare costs less. Um, and, and some of the elements of the Affordable Care Act try to, to get it just that. Um, so there are, I mean, there are things within the ACA that have been beneficial. And uh, um, I think expanding healthcare coverage to uh, those people that have traditionally been uninsured or underinsured um, is important. Um, you know, here in North Carolina, we haven't expanded Medicaid. Um, and because so, we, we've been funding everyone else's Medicaid expansion, you know, through our tax dollars. So, you know, I think that's an opportunity for North Carolina to, uh, to reinvest our own money in the health of our, our citizens. So I think that's been a positive element for, for others within the Affordable Care Act. I think keeping kids on uh, your policy until they're 26, um, certainly helpful. And um, that's an age group between 18 and 26 that, uh, you know, typically those people don't elect to have health insurance because when you're young, I know when I was young as a, you know, a lieutenant in the army, I thought I was pretty tough and invincible. Um, and then, and then finally, I, I think, um, you know, really looking at, at quality care and looking at, uh, um, you know, performance, um, metrics that, you know, that are focused on patient outcomes. And I think, you know, we, as we've worked uh, over the past uh, um, 12 years on um, those rules and regulations within the Affordable Care Act, um, you know, we know that uh, by helping patients manage their health-related issues and by treating patients um, as close to home as possible, as well as creating greater access for them to receive treatment to manage a pre-existing condition or disease, that drives the, down the cost of care. We've got great hospitals and health systems in North Carolina that are doing um, uh, for, uh, you know, AC, accountable care organization work or working with pilots with business and industry that are saving millions of dollars by taking, you know, that population of employee, worker, or family member that have diabetes or hypertension or another chronic disease. And by managing them, you know, we've been able to reduce their cost of care significantly. And, and we know that you know, there's about 20 to 25% of the population that are using about 80% of the healthcare dollars. We want that 25% to be healthier. Well, Chris, the second thing is happening at the same time, of course, because healthcare is better, people, generally speaking, are living longer. Uh, and as you live longer, of course, you're more sub subject to having more health problems. And how, uh, is North Carolina about average as far as our aging uh, situation or are we ahead of the schedule there or what? Well, I think, you know, I think it, it's, a, it's a tale of two states. So um, when you look at urban areas in North Carolina, um, I think the average age in urban areas are going down. I mean, we've got Apple and Google and other people that are declaring, 
um, uh, that they're moving to North Carolina and that's going to attract lots of jobs. And those jobs are typically uh, filled by, you know, young, smart people. And we're, we're so blessed in North Carolina to have, you know, a a great uh, university system and a great community college system that's producing these young, smart folks for, you know, these big tech companies. In rural North Carolina, the average age is actually increasing. Um, So, you know, we have to be really thoughtful and clever in regards to how do we design, orchestrate, and deliver healthcare in two very different environments to help people have positive outcomes. And, and, uh, you know, I think it's one of the reasons why telehealth is so important. I think it's one of the reasons why um, smaller hospitals are connecting the larger systems for uh, additional clinical support and oversight and resources. But the fact of the matter is it's a problem that we are all working together um, to solve. Well, you know, you, you brought up the fact that we have two states. We also have uh, some very small counties and some areas that are very remote. I, I know we, uh, I go to a, a church that has a membership of 4,500. We've actually got an entire, entire county in North Carolina that has fewer people than belong to my church. Yeah. And uh, uh, those areas uh, are going to be very dependent uh, on uh, telehealth and telemedicine uh, for their long-range future because uh, they're a long way away from really good medical oh, you're, facilities. Yeah, you're exactly right. I, I had the privilege uh, earlier in my career to, to be the president of the hospital in Windsor, North Carolina. Um, and, you know, and Bertie County is a, you know, is, is a relatively uh, poor and underserved county. Um, we had a, 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 a fiber optic link between that hospital and the trauma center in Greenville, and, and that was literally a lifesaver, where we use that technology to uh, to have doctors in Greenville helping direct our medical staff to to best care for people that uh, needed to be rescued um, medically, and to prepare them for transfer to a higher level of care. So, yeah, I think uh, we still have significant issues and significant. Um, challenges that we have to solve for rural areas. Um, you know, telehealth um, certainly is one of those things. And, and just, uh, you know, um, I think expanding um, coverage to people that are working but don't have health insurance, um, certainly another. Well, speaking of uh, health insurance, there's a, a debate in North Carolina uh, North Carolina is one of the states that has so far has uh, decided against Medicaid expansion. Uh, there are those who believe that uh, we would be wise to do it. And those are still opposed to it. What's your take on that? So I, I would say that, uh, that every hospital in the state uh, supports expanding coverage to North Carolinians who don't have access to health care coverage. So I don't, I don't, it, it, for us, if you call it Medicaid expansion, if you call it Carolina's care, if you call it whatever uh, um, Senator Berger and Speaker Moore come up with as far as a name and the governor agrees on, we're for that. So the idea that we've got half a million North Carolinians, many of which are farmers or veterans or fishermen um, that are hardworking folks that don't have health care, you know, the fact that we've got half a million North Carolinians that don't have 
any kind of insurance coverage and therefore are hesitant to receive care. Um, and when they do receive care, typically they've put it off. So when they show up in the hospital, they're really sick, requires a lot of resources. And then all of us, all of us are funding it one way or another. So, you know, we believe it's the right thing for North Carolina. I think if you add, if you look at some of the economic studies from other states, I mean, they believe it's created economic lift for their state. Um, I think it's a matter of just uh, having some bipartisan leadership sit down and say, how can we best care for people in North Carolina? How can we make sure that hardworking folks have coverage and access to good care? And, you know, let's let that be our true north as we try to figure out how to make that work. See, from time to time, I have trouble figuring out bills that I get from hospitals and or doctors because it'll say, you know, the charges for this procedure were, let's just say $100. Your insurance company paid 40 you owe zero. What happened to the other sixty dollars? Well, mean, so first I would tell you that uh, that you know whatever it is. Yeah. That, well, no, you know, no, no, uh, no business would um, design a financing system as is currently in place in healthcare, and it, it all stems back to when Medicare was created many, many years ago. Um, and the federal government, you know, set payment. Um, so, um, you know, the way that uh, healthcare finance works, and, and it'd be if, if you owned a grocery store and you had a hundred people come in, and out of that hundred people, you had um, sixty of those hundred people came in and paid a set price that was negotiated by the federal government. Then you had um, 20 folks show up, 20 or 30 folks show up, and they got free groceries. They just filled the cart and left. So all of a sudden, you got you know 20 folks that are left um, that are responsible for funding the difference between what the government paid for those groceries and what it cost you, and also covering the cost of the people that got groceries for free. So um, you know, I think the way it works now is, I mean, there's a lot of cross-subsidization and support by people with insurance that are providing coverage and paying the bills of people that don't. And that's another reason why Medicaid expansion is so important. Um, but I do think we're working on clear billing. Uh, so it's easier to understand. Um, and, you know, we also are working on transparency. You know, we're every hospital in the state, according to federal law, you know, now has to um, create a portal for patients to understand what their bill is or what they're going to pay before they get services. Um, and every hospital in the state you know, has uh, talented people that are waiting for folks to call them to ask them what they can expect. Um, but it is a little confusing to get a bill that states, here's, here's what your bill was. This is what we as an insurance company negotiated, which was a discount off that charge. And here's your responsibility, be it zero or the difference between what the charge and what the negotiated rate is. So we do need to make it simpler to understand and give people the opportunity to better participate in a way that makes sense. Well, one of the things I've noticed is that from time to time, the federal government likes to use percentages 
And so to for the hospital to get the, the right amount of money, uh, all they have to do is raise the charge and the percentage then works out and so forth. I mean, you know, it's all got to be paid for. That's uh, something that uh, uh, seems to get lost and everybody is looking for somebody else to pay for it. Well, you know, that, that's exactly right. And then, you know, you throw in, uh, you know, insurance companies, which, you know, essentially, you know, kind of act as a middleman, you know, growing up in North Carolina, you know, health insurance companies are like what the tobacco warehouses used to be where, you know, they would house the tobacco and they, they were the, the, the middleman between the grower and the, uh, you know, the producer. Our guest is Steve Lawler. He's the president and CEO of the North Carolina Healthcare Association. And we are going to come back and talk a little bit more about healthcare costs and the problems that the hospitals in the state are facing. And we'll do that when we return right after these messages. Excuse me. I know you have a nine o'clock, so I'll keep this short. I'm the business suit in the back of your closet. You wore me nearly every day before your office went, quote, casual. I used to be the CEO of your closet. Now I'm just that one intern no one ever talks to. I always thought you'd circle back with me, get granular, keep me in the pipeline. But nada, nothing. Don't you remember the McKittrick presentation? You spilled coffee on me and I still looked amazing during the breakout talkback Q&A. So I think it's time for me to move on. I've got a great resume and I absolutely crush it in interviews, okay? Let's make this a clean break. Shift the paradigm. The only thing I ask is that you think outside the box here and do this. Take me to Goodwill, where I can really make a difference. Your donations to Goodwill create new jobs, training programs, and education assistance for people in your community. To find your nearest donation center, go to goodwill.org. Donate stuff. Create jobs. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Hi, it's Olivia Munn with my shelter pets, Frankie and Chance. Say hi, guys. (coughs) When I adopted them, I discovered that they both have incredible personalities. Chance's sole purpose in life is to love and to be loved. Frankie is a little bit of a scoundrel and always entertaining. They're a little bit of a lot of things, but they're all pure love. Adopt pure love at theshelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the Humane Society of the United States, and Maddie's Fund. Now once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. Our guest on Carolina Newsmakers this week is Steve Lawler. He is the president and CEO of the North Carolina Healthcare Association after a, a career that includes a number of assignments throughout the area. Steve, uh, you're a native of Greenville, as we said, a graduate of the Citadel um, and uh, Georgia Southern University as far as your MBA. How did you get interested in healthcare? How, what was the thing that, uh, that uh, drew you to get uh, this as a career? Um, well, uh, so my, uh, both my parents were, uh, um, educators at ECU. You know, my, my, my dad was an English teacher and my mother was a nurse. So she worked at the, the nursing school at, uh, at ECU. And, and before she joined the faculty, she was a public health nurse. So she had, uh, a list of, uh, clients that you would go visit their homes and make sure that, uh, you know, they had, uh, not only, um, checkups, but, you know, they also had, um, a list of resources that were available to help them. So, you know, that, you know, kind of really got me interested in healthcare is this idea that, uh, you can be part of an, an industry, you know, even though it's really complex and sometimes it's hard to understand, um, it's an industry whose sole purpose is to, uh, to help people. So, 
you know, I was fortunate enough after I graduated from the Citadel to get commissioned and then branched as a medical service corps officer. So essentially a healthcare administrator in, in the army. So I had the, the opportunity to command medical units and I worked for the Surgeon General for a little bit and uh, met some really, you know, fine people that I've uh, maintained lifelong friendships with. I suspect that uh, being uh, an association that represents both the larger and the community hospitals, you have sort of a uh, dual responsibility there because there's quite a lot of difference between the larger medical centers and the community hospitals. Tell us a little bit about how you navigate that. How do you uh, cover the best interest of both? Well, I think that's a great question. Uh, so uh, first of all, I've had the privilege of, of leading both kinds of hospitals. I've led a small community hospital and had the, the privilege of, of working in uh, in Bertie County. I've also run a thousand bed medical center in Greenville. So I think having that experience has helped me, you know, have conversations with, uh, you know, our largest systems and our smallest hospitals. Um, I think as we have those conversations, I think we like to focus on the common denominator. And, and that common denominator is how do we work together and what resources and support do you need from the association to help you best take care of patients. Um, and it's different based on size. We have large systems that, that are nation leading and we have medical centers that uh, are some of the best teaching hospitals in the country. And, you know, they have, you know, needs and, and wants that uh, are, are different because they've got a sophisticated level of infrastructure, but they still need people to tell their story. They still need people to help them elevate their brand and reputation. Um, they still need help comparing themselves to others to see how they're doing. And they need a voice on Jones Street in Washington that we help provide. For our smaller members, our smaller hospitals, you know, they, they have a different set of needs because they, they may not have the resources that are available. So in many cases, we act as a convener um, and as a collaborator to bring them together to create a little scale so um you know you can drive savings where you know you're you're not buying only for yourself you're buying as a a, a collective or a group and that has um you know significant financial advantage in regards to you know driving down the cost of uh supplies and uh and and medical equipment you know we also uh provide, uh, you know, advocacy and support for them, uh, as well as, you know, we help them, you know, recruit staff, or we help them find uh, a temporary staff when they have a shortage. So I think going into those conversations, knowing that, you know, that everyone needs something. And um, yes, that something may be dependent on size, scope and scale. Um, and for us, you know, we use relationships as the currency that we spend to kind of figure that out. Now, we have both for-profit hospitals and non-profit hospitals, uh, yet both of them seem to charge about, uh, have the same charges and that sort of thing, or generally speaking, close. Uh, tell us the difference of that and how does a profit a hospital uh, for-profit operate uh, in a different way than a non-profit hospital? 
Well, I, I think, yeah, and that's a good question. I think first and foremost, uh, you know, I think people can be um, confident in knowing that their, their, their local hospital, regardless of whether or not it's for-profit or not-for-profit, is there to take care of them and, and serve them. Um, from a rate perspective, you know, each individual hospital um, or system negotiates with Blue Cross Blue Shield or United or Cigna or whomever um, those rates. And in many cases, uh, you know, hospitals are rate takers. So um, in many instances, you know, these, these large insurance companies are the ones that, uh, you know, have all the leverage when they're negotiating rates. Um, so there's typically not a difference between a for-profit or a not-for-profit in how a rate uh, is, is negotiated. Um, and I think the big difference between those two is, is you know, our not-for-profit hospitals you know, are operating for, you know, the benefit of community. So any retained earnings are going back into the community to invest in, in people, technology, and programs and services. You know, for-profit entities, even though those things are important, they also have to provide some kind of return for investors. So um, I think that's the big difference uh, in North Carolina. Um, all of our hospitals, I think, do a fine job working together to make sure people have what they need. I think the pandemic was a great example of where, you know, individual hospitals were, you know, reaching across competitive lines and sharing people and information and supplies in a way that we've never seen before. So where does the University uh, of North Carolina hospital system fit in this? Because uh, that uh, uh, some of the teaching hospitals do a lot of research, like at Duke and Chapel Hill, and I suspect also in Winston-Salem. Uh, the teaching hospitals uh, have a sort of a different function and also do a considerable amount of research. Where does this fit in? Yeah, so, uh, you know, we're, we're extraordinarily fortunate in North Carolina to have some of the nation's leading research and teaching hospitals. Um, you know, those hospitals that you named are... Uh, um, you know, usually in the top 10 list, you know, as well as uh, ECU and, and Biden. ECU and Biden have a national reputation for producing primary care physicians. And, you know, we certainly need more of those in North Carolina. Um, I, I think they play an important role in regards to, uh, um, you know, translational research. And what I mean there is, you know, looking at a problem and coming up with a practical solution that actually can be applied in the patient care setting to help accelerate uh, patient care and patient recovery. So, you know, many of our teaching hospitals and medical schools, I think are these practical incubators for good ideas. And then they use their clinical platform to see whether that, that good idea works. And then they work together to scale them. So, um, you know, we're, you know, we're extraordinarily fortunate to have just, you know, folks that are not only producing great physicians, and we produce thousands of physicians every year here in North Carolina, but, you know, we're also producing medical breakthrough um, that is impacting the lives of uh, people throughout the globe. And you can't overlook the economic benefit because a lot of federal grants come in, and, and we must also mention not only 
that the grants come to schools like Chapel Hill and Duke, but also NC State is do, uh, has a number of programs that involve uh, programs that affect the research that's being done at Chapel Hill and Duke. Oh yeah, it's surprising how many uh, how many medical centers, to include Wake Med and others, have a great relationship with the Centennial Campus at NC State, where they're working together. Um, you know, School of Textile, looking for ways to impregnate uh, textiles with uh, um, you know material that prevent uh, the spread of uh, bacteria or virus. So you know, really, some important things. I, I do think it's important to note that. Um, even though with all this great teaching going on and uh, research, um, you know, they're, they're not getting paid anymore um, in regards to uh, reimbursement for clinical services than anyone else as a teaching hospital. So, you know, that's really kind of a mission driven service to the state type of uh, type of work that, uh, as you said, gets funded through grants. Um, sometimes it's funded through patents. Um, but, you know, it's also funded through tuition and uh, through uh, philanthropy. So, um, well, there's a lot of moving parts to go in there that make it work. It's certainly a blessing to have all this. And, of course, I guess we would be totally remiss if we didn't also mention the function of the community college system in providing additional healthcare workers, especially in the nursing area. Uh, I mean, they are the cornerstone for healthcare workforce in the state. Um, and, you know, they do an exceptional job providing, you know, ADN trained nurses. So they're, they're registered nurses. They do a yeoman's job producing uh, medical technologists and x-ray technicians, et cetera. So, you know, especially in, in rural communities, I mean, they are, you know, that uh, talent pipeline that allows those hospitals to continue to function. Doctors like to practice near hospitals because it's of great assistance to them, lab work and things of this nature. And if they have to uh, put a a patient in the hospital, they can visit them. This puts a strain on the smaller communities, like you mentioned, for example, Bertie County and so forth. How how do you incentivize a doctor to go to an underserved area? How do we solve that problem? That's a great question. So, you know, what we've seen in small communities is is the hospital – has uh, moved to hire physicians. So the days of independent practitioners in a small hospital, kind of like Marcus Welby, I mean, those days are, are long gone. So in many cases, hosp- small communities, hospitals will, will hire their medical staff to make sure that they are in the community and have the support structure they need to succeed. The other thing they do is uh, um there's been an increase in, in the number of hospitals. In fact, almost every hospital in the state offers this now where there's a, a team approach to taking care of patients where private practitioners that are practicing in the community have a partner, a member of their extended team called a hospitalist that are taking care of patients in the hospital. They're physicians that are specialized in taking care of inpatient care. And that's freed up some of the time of community physicians not to have to go to the hospital every five seconds or run over to the ED. So it's allowed them to focus on their practice and access to care. And it's improved their quality of life because they're not trying to juggle a hospital practice and their community practice. Well, that's important. And uh, 
because again, manpower is uh, short in some areas and long in others and spreading it out and getting it distributed uh, wisely is, is I'm sure a real challenge, especially in a state like North Carolina, where we have some very isolated areas. Well, uh, we're going to have one final segment with Steve. And when we do, I want to get back and talk a little bit about emergency rooms and how we are involving drugstores now in, in a sort of a different way to provide health care and how this is affecting hospitals and health care. Steve Lawler, our guest, is president and CEO of the North Carolina Healthcare Association, formerly the North Carolina Hospital Association. And we'll do all of that when we return right after these messages. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. When you went car shopping, you meant business. You ace vehicle history searches and test drives. You out salesmen to the salesman. Now you've got your wheels. If you manage that, you can get your retirement plan on track. Visiting aceyourretirement.org can help. With 401k tips and smart saving strategies, you'll have the info you need to get more for your future. Go to aceyourretirement.org. Because when it comes to speeding past financial challenges, you're an ace. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest is Steve Lawler. He's the president and CEO of the North Carolina Healthcare Association. And, of course, this is a topic that is of interest to everyone because we're all concerned about our health care. We've talked early in the program about the effect of COVID-19 on hospitals and how we have wondered uh, how we have made it through that period of time to a point where we feel fairly comfortable. Um, and we've talked about the role of the university hospitals, the difference between larger and community hospitals, and a number of things, profit and nonprofit hospitals. So it's been a really interesting program. Steve, I want to turn now to the fact that uh, uh, for the last several years, uh, maybe a decade or so, we were very concerned about how emergency rooms were being used because emergency rooms were often being used not just for um, emergencies, but rather for routine uh, health care for individuals that had nowhere else to go. Has that situation improved? Are we getting it to back to where the emergency room is truly for emergencies? Um, well, well, I mean, I would say that, uh, that, you know, during the pandemic, you know, we saw emergency room utilization drop off and it's not necessarily because people were going to a primary care physician or, choosing a more appropriate uh, location for care. It's just, you know, individuals were hunkered down and uh, in many cases were hesitant to go to a hospital just because they thought, you know, there's COVID patients there. So therefore, 
um, it's not a safe place. I mean, hospitals are are the safest place in the state to go for care. That said, um, you know, we continue to see, um, you know, trends where individuals are using you know, uh, emergency departments as their destination for care. I think one of the, the greatest crises we're seeing within emergency departments deals with our current behavioral health situation in North Carolina. We've got a behavioral health system that's broken and it is putting law enforcement, hospitals, emergency departments, and others uh, in an extraordinarily difficult position because it just takes an already busy emergency department and it complicates what goes on because these are individuals who need long-term care and, and there's nowhere for them to go. So, um, you know, so one of the things we believe is really important is, is working, you know, with our senior elected officials, with um, Senator Berger and Speaker Moore and the governor to, uh, to look for solutions on this. And that in itself is going to help uh, decompress emergency rooms. It's going to make our lo local law enforcement much happier. And it's going to help uh, our neighbors and brothers and sisters um, live better lives. Um, in regards to choosing the emergency department for care, you know, we, we, you know, we've got uh, an access problem, which in some cases is caused by, you know, just uh, the number of resources and people in rural areas. We talked about that. Um, but also, you know, individuals with health care coverage, since they don't have a primary care physician, typically, uh, you know, they're choosing the ED as their destination for care. And that that's not the most uh, effective place and certainly the not the most cost effective place. So I, I think there are two things from a policy perspective that our friends in the General Assembly can help us with. One is expanding access and coverage to people without uh, health care coverage, so closing the coverage gap. The other is helping to work with us to fix the behavioral health um, crisis in the state. More and more uh, health care seems to be coming from uh, the use of pharmacists at, at drugstores. For example, in COVID-19, you can get your, uh, your shots there, you can get flu shots there and so forth. Um, do you see a further expansion of this type of service? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, people today are better consumers. Um, certainly young people are. I mean, they're, you know, they're on the Internet figuring out, uh, you know, what's the next deal on Amazon Prime Day. Um, so I think as, as individuals become better consumers and understand um, where to access care, I think we're going to see more and more of that. And in many cases, it's generational. Um, so people like me or my folks or people <clears throat> that are in my yearbook, um, you know, they traditionally have had a relationship with a physician or a relationship with a health system to access their health care needs. I mean, younger people are much more transactional. So they're going to go to a destination that gets them what they need when they need it. So I do think that the market will adapt to, uh, to provide access points for, you know, those individuals who like that transactional here and now approach to care versus a relationship-based approach that, uh, you know, either people with chronic problems or older, an older generation would prefer. Well, we talked earlier about telemedicine and telehealth. 
being a, a boom for the underserved areas, but it can work equally well in a metropolitan area because it's so much easier to go online uh, than it is to uh, uh, go visit a doctor. Yeah, I, I would completely agree. And, uh, you know, we've, we've seen lots of our hospitals and health systems uh, offer to their patients uh, a mobile app where you can just go in there, click on your app. You can see your favorite uh, physician's assistant or nurse practitioner or somebody else pop up. They ask you some questions. They may uh, ask you to, you know, take a picture of your rash or um, describe your, your problems, and then they'll call in a prescription at a local pharmacy. So, um, you know, great utility for, you know, for folks that are busy um, and, and that have confidence that uh, their current um, non-emergent medical condition can be treated, um, you know, over the, uh, the phone. It's no different than, you know, as, as, and as you said, uh, we've adapted from a business perspective from in-person meetings to Zoom. So if, if people are comfortable there, they're certainly comfortable talking to uh, a provider to help them diagnose a problem uh, over the uh, airways. You know, it's interesting. I have an iWatch, and I, you know, I can do an EKG on my iWatch now. Yeah, uh, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's not quite as thorough as another one, but it certainly gives you a good indication. That's just a, another example of how technology is extending and making uh, better healthcare available. Okay, right. so there's always legislation, both on the federal level and the state level, that I'm sure is going to affect our healthcare. What should we as consumers be concerned about right now? Yeah, so I would say the legislation that, you know, we're watching, um, and I'll start in Washington and, and make our way south on I-95 and get to Raleigh. Um, so in Washington, we're, you know, we're looking at the Infrastructure Act. Um, you know, we do believe that, uh, you know, that there's a need for investment uh, in infrastructure. And we think about this in, in maybe two tiers. So tier one is just shoring up and strengthening public health and hospitals to make sure that we're well positioned to deal with the pandemic and any other um, disaster in, in the future. Um, there's, there has not been you know, any additional funding um, to prepare for any of these things. And uh, I think what we've learned over the past 18 months is that uh, you know, having a well-resourced and prepared organizations make a difference. So I think that's tier one of that. You know, tier two um, is looking at, um, I like to think about it as, as looking at healthcare infrastructure and helping small community hospitals reinvent themselves. I mean, these are hospitals that were built uh, in the 50s. And, you know, over the years, I mean, they've just continued to put a, a, a coat of paint and, and uh some new siding on the building and uh, as part of a renovation. So I do think that uh, the Infrastructure Act can go help uh, support community hospitals redesign and rebuild themselves to modernize their facilities so it, it makes it more patient-friendly and user-friendly. At the state level, um, you know, there's a variety of, of bills that we're currently looking at that we think are meaningful. So there's a bill on telehealth and whether or not we're actually applying lessons learned throughout the pandemic in a way that it becomes, you know, usual and standard practice and that it's actually paid for. 
Um, so right now, not all aspects of telehealth are paid for. Um, and we believe that uh, there should be payment parity for telehealth so that we're able to invest in technology and people to deliver telehealth to small communities. Um, Medicaid expansion is always on the table. Um, again, you know, we support a bipartisan approach. Um, you know, we don't think that, uh, that it's very helpful getting into a, uh, a wrestling match, um, you know, over expansion. You know, we ask that, uh, again, uh, our elected officials get together and uh, work together to come up with uh, a solution to expand coverage to half a million people. Um, you know, there's currently uh, legislation dealing with certificate of need. And, and in North Carolina, we believe the certificate of need laws, which uh, set uh, parameters for high-end uh, medical equipment, hospital beds, et cetera, uh, we believe those are important, especially to small and rural communities, because the, um, the elected procedures and the non-essential procedures that are different than acute care admissions, those are the business lines that individuals or organizations that want to do away with CON want to compete for. And um, those who want to compete don't, don't have the moral obligation to take care of everyone. They don't have the responsibility to run emergency departments 24-7. So we think the certificate of need law is important. Um, it certainly needs to continue to be modernized and improved over time. Um, but it is, uh, it, it is critical for, for small communities to help support hospitals and, and prevent, uh, you know, those who are interested in, you know, profiting from those high-end services from coming in and, and, and peeling them away. So uh, if you were to wake up at, uh, I don't know, 3 a.m. in the morning, tomorrow morning and uh, suddenly you realize there's something on your mind, uh, what would be your biggest concern right now? What is something that just worries you and concerns you and thinks, and you think it needs immediate action right now in the area of the hospitals of North Carolina? Yeah. So I, I would say that uh, immediate, the two things that I think are, are essential is one fixing the behavioral health issue for, for our neighbors and friends and North Carolina. Second, I think is Medicaid expansion. Um, and, you know, all of those tie to hospitals and health systems and other people working together to improve equity of care and reduce, uh, you know, some of the, uh, the barriers that, uh, you know, some of our neighbors and friends in smaller communities have had to good care for years. So there's, I think those are the things that, you know, if I could just say, let's, let's move on something to make things better. I think those are the, the three things. Steve, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and background and uh, inf information about the, the state of the hospitals in the state of North Carolina and healthcare. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he reminds me to remind you that if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can go to carolinanewsmakers.com and do just that. Also, for those who are listening to the half-hour version, two more segments are also available. So until we meet again next week on the same group of stations, I hope you and yours have a very good week. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong 
Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.